World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. So this is Lviv Station at about 10 o'clock in the evening on March 24th. I'm sitting against a pillar. Seats are all completely taken. If you're a regular listener to The Intelligence, you'll have heard our editor-in-chief interviewing world leaders, CEOs, even representatives of Hamas. But it's not often that she gets to report from the field. There is a very distinctive smell, a smell that Arkady calls the smell of war. People who have not had the chance to wash, the smell of exhaustion. This does not feel like normal, and it's a pretty sobering experience. A few weeks after Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in February 2022, Zani Minton-Beddoes and our Russia and Eastern Europe editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, went to see the impact firsthand. From Lviv, they took the train to Kiev to interview Volodymyr Zelensky, the first foreign journalist to visit him in his bunker after the start of the invasion. Back then, the whole world waited, with bated breath, to see whether Ukraine would be able to stand up to the might of Russia, and what would happen to Europe if it couldn't. This September, Zanian Arkady once again boarded a train and headed towards the Ukrainian capital. They came back to assess the state of a nation which has been at war now for almost two years. What does it mean to a country to suffer the trauma of war for 18 months? I'm Ora Ogumbi, and this is The Weekend Intelligence, our weekly podcast that takes you deeper into the stories that matter. The war in Ukraine has captured the public imagination since it began. Perhaps because of a sense that what people are fighting for is something much bigger than territory in Eastern Europe. For the right to self-rule. For democratic values. For freedom. But as the rest of the world becomes more distracted, Ukraine is entering a new phase of war. And how the population will respond to this protracted conflict is going to be different from how they responded in the moment of immediate threat. In this episode, Zani and Arkady reflect on their trip to Ukraine and the people they met there to ask how this long war is reshaping Ukrainian society and identity. But actually, we are not normal. We are uh, broken. And this, you know, this like PR phrase that we are unbreakable, it's actually not true. How long can the Ukrainian people continue their reality of living on a knife's edge? How will their time in the trenches unite the country? In looking backwards in hatred or in a unified vision for a democratic future? 
What happens next matters for all of us. The first place that we went to was Bucha. Bucha, a name that is now going to be forever associated with horror and massacre. Bucha, Bucha. the most outrageous atrocity of the 21st century. Bucha is the place that Russian forces occupied in the very first days of the war. When Ukrainian forces entered Bucha, they saw extraordinary, horrendous scenes of violence against civilians. Bodies scattered along the street. Their bodies lie face up, hands bound, mouths contorted. Cases of torture, of disappearances. The horror deliberately on display. It shows the outlines of a mass grave on the grounds of a church. Just over a year later, it's, it's literally like an affluent suburb that it was before. It, satellite dishes from the new roofs, a new asphalted road. Yes, it is remarkable how quickly people come back, how they wanted to clear the debris. It's literally just clean up after feeling that their homes have been so soiled. So the reason for going to Bucha was not just because it was such a symbolic place of Russian atrocity, but also because I really wanted to see how a place that has been through that is faring 18 months on. And so we set off there on our first day in Kiev and took us about half an hour to go to this place. But the minute we get there, we literally were getting out of the car. There is an air alert. Attention, air raid alert. Proceed to the nearest shelter. All right. Well, it's normal. It's, it's all normal. Okay, fine. When it flies, meek. It's 80% uh, that it will be empty. All is good. Oleg, our driver, assured us that we shouldn't worry, that every time a meek takes off in Russia, this thing goes off. Nobody seemed to do anything. But then we went to the one place where people did seem to respond to the air alert, and that was the school. It was the first day of school, and we went there not to see how people are responding to air raid alert, actually, initially. We went to see how the first day of school goes. So we're, we're in the school courtyard. It it's, looks like very nicely attended, very modern school. So not only it's the first day of school, but it's also the first time that all the kids returned to their classrooms since the start of this full-scale invasion. So we're in this underground shelter. Well, I guess it's really the basement the school. There must be about 120 kids in there. And they're being picked up by their parents because it's the end of the day. It's a very chatty, happy scene. Mother questioning boy, why hasn't he eaten his sandwich which she lovingly prepared for him? It all very, very familiar, apart from the fact that we are standing in a shelter. It was so noisy in that basement. A hundred plus kids in a basement is really noisy, but there were about 1,400 kids in total in the school. And although new students enrolling in first grade hadn't actually reached yet the pre-war level, it has gone up this year and 
The city officials we were talking to said that things really were returning to normal. So in 2021, there was 1,121 pupils who entered the first grade, women the six years old. In 2022, right after the occupation, when the schools reopened, it was dropped down until 890. And this year there was 924 pupils who went to school. So, so we slowly, slowly, gradually are growing so that the, the pupils are coming back. And there was this teacher sitting by the side checking homework. And we talked to her, Ludmila Batrakova, and she has been a teacher for 30 odd years. She was a physics teacher and her class, which was on the subject of heat, got interrupted by the sirens. You know, in one way, Arkady, it all felt incredibly normal. But it struck me that virtually every conversation we had doesn't have to go on for very long until you realize just how deeply everyone's been affected by this war. I mean, Nud Miller, the physics teacher, she told us that she moved to Bucha after fleeing from Donetsk in 2014, only for Bucha itself then to be attacked. She says they live on a street that... On the parallel to Yablinska, this famous street where there were shootings there and her neighbor, like they're renting a house from this guy and he was shot on that street. One of the things that I've noticed since the start of the war and which struck me is how little pathos there is in people's talk about what they've experienced. I mean, they use normal words. There is no special language to describe what they've been through. So we're driving through Butcher away from the school, and really there is very little sign of those horrors, but we wanted to go and talk to people and see what scars in a way are there on people's minds. And we're going to talk to this couple, Anna Bucherova and Daniil Kalashnikov, who were there at the beginning of Russian occupation before they fled and now they've come back. The amazing thing is how young they are, or how young Anna is. Anna is 25, she's a very young-looking 25. Daniela is, I think, in his late 30s. Can we go inside? They show us first the shelter that they lived in while the Russians were literally across the field opposite. Not exactly a shelter, it's just a basement. For us, it's a shelter. There's a door, there is a, a metal door into the building and it's, it's, uh, there are holes from the shrapnel. Yeah, and this is the, the... Describe what it was like, what, what the sounds, what did you hear you were down here? Uh, Russians was everywhere, yes, because we hear a uh, tank there, uh, they drive and we hear the... The uh, tank is crashing, yeah. we hear, it was too scary that I'm like blocked on the day and I was like a zombie. Honey, what was it like for you? Uh, first day I had this kind of hysteria smile all the time. Uh, it's not the first time that I'm uh, living through this in my life. Back in 2014 we moved here from Luhansk. That's why for me it was the feeling that I had before. So as you heard, Anna is from Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. And when eastern Ukraine was invaded first in 2014, Anna told us her father actually stayed to fight there. But before he did, he took his daughter and his wife and put them on the train headed west just before the Russians blew up the bridge that provided safe passage for those fleeing. And Anna's father 
died in battle in 2016. So at only 25, to have lived through this twice already. That's why when it all happened uh, for the first couple of days, I was actually calming him down and saying that it's not that bad. Because because, uh, <laughs> because he didn't eat anything in those days. How is it now? To what extent this is still the dominant part of your life? It actually feels like there is no life because like, we live in this illusion of normal life. And when it all collapses like this, sometimes it feels like maybe it's better if I go and fight on the front line because at least there I'm useful. Do you ever think about that seriously? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. But so far you've decided not to. I tried to stop here. Actually, there are no emotions now, I would say. We lived through that uh, moment when it was a very emotional time, and now there is no anger, there is disappointment now. And when you look forward, how do you see the future for the two of you, for your family here? If truly, we don't see a future here, because I wait a lot of time for changing in Ukraine. We decided to wait for end uh, the war, and after that we leave Ukraine, because I have sister in the United States, and we try find new life there. So you don't want to build your life in the new Ukraine? Yeah. Is that true about you, Anna, as well? Просто... When people live with illusions, it's very bad and disappointing. And when at the beginning of the war, everyone was showing like how Ukrainians like superheroes and they're very cool. But actually, we are not normal. We are broken. And this PR phrase that we are unbreakable, it's actually not true. We are broken and we want to have this chance to leave because this will never finish with a neighbor like this. I was so struck by those comments because they were they were so different to much of what we heard. So many people that we heard from in Kiev were determined to fight, determined to stay, determined to build the new Ukraine. And yes, tired and yes, exhausted by the war, but absolutely resilient. And yet there was an honesty in her despondency. From the start of the war, Zelensky had to rally people, and we started to perceive this almost through this kind of narrative as if it is some film or drama. And then you realize that ordinary people are not heroes. It's normal for people not to want to die. They never asked for this war. To me, this was a very important reality check when you have to recognize that it's not going to go in a straight line, and a lot of people will leave, and a lot of lives have been broken however heroic the effort and resilience is. The real lesson is that you can't draw simplistic conclusions. You know, we started in the school. It was that extraordinary feeling of normalcy despite everything, although very quickly underneath the surface you could see how people had been affected. Then Anna and Danielle disillusioned. But then we met Roman. 
So we're the Kiev train station, and it's the evening. And Kiev station is massive, and there is one platform where trains are pulling from Kramatorsk. That's the front line, pretty much. And you go down to this platform, and there is this music in the background coming from loudspeakers. So we're looking for Lieutenant Roman Hasko, who is a frontline military medic with the 80th Airborne Assault Brigade. And before the war, he was a business analyst working in Ivano-Frankivsk, in the west of the country. So this must train be the train from Kramatorsk. So we are on platform number 12. It says Kramatorsk, Kiev. It's 21-21. The crowd just pouring out of the train is mostly men in their military fatigues. Uh, I mean, these this are the people who've come from the east. They come from the front. Uh, they look tired. There is one soldier just in front of me who's hugging his daughter. She just met him off the train. Again, it's like the images from the Second World War movies. I think that might be Roman with a red berry. Hi. Hello, Hello. Roman. Arkady, Hi. Uh, How are you? Uh, my first vacation, so <laughs> I'm, well, I'm prepared for, for, be for best emotions. It's his first leave of two weeks since the war began. And he agreed to meet us here in Kyiv. Where are you going from here in 90 minutes? Uh, in Ivano-Frankivsk. In Ivano-Frankivsk, so yeah, you've got a train Western to Ivano-Frankivsk. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, we'll make sure you don't miss that train. <laughs> I, I can assure you that I won't miss it. <laughs> so, Roman steps off the train. He's mid-30s, very fit. He actually looked very cheerful, happy, obviously, to be on leave. And I'm just thinking at that point, look, he woke up that morning with his soldiers near Bakhmut, and then he gets off the train in Kyiv, and he steps into the city, which is bustling. There is McDonald's, there are taxis. And I just wanted to ask him how he sees that contrast. First, what I'm seeing, it's potential officers, surgeons, and soldiers. But they are still civilian. And uh, first thought, why they're here. You walk out of the station, you see all the civilians. Yes. I think, what the fuck are they doing here? Yes, because they are much healthier, much stronger, and much more prepared for this war than people who are already on the first line. All soldiers back from vacation and said, oh, better wasn't going there, you know, because I'm seeing my city, I'm seeing my friends, I'm seeing all these men, and it's, it's a problem, generally. You're not a professional military, are you? No, I am in armed forces 18 months, from beginning of invasion in February 2022. I, uh, I have family... Little daughter, wife, I have my older daughter from previous marriage. And everything was okay. But I knew about this war. I prepared to this war because all my life, all my adult life, I would say from 18 years maybe, I knew that something would happen. I was in Maidan in 2014 and it was first phase. It was a fight for the future and it was a fight for my right to be a free man I think for that time was the damage I mean thank God you are alive you are fit mm -hmm. what are the things that are happening that I can't see uh, mental health it's very weird thing as for me because uh, it depends how you accept all this war 
and how you gave all the scene going inside of your mind. And I trying to do everything what I can for not give a chance for my military life go inside my future civilian life. Some uh, imaginable wall inside my brain to save some of my connection with my family, some say my connection with my hobbies, with my habits. I really love theater, you know. And my Me dream, too. yes, I, I have a big dream uh, see National Theater in London because Judy Dench and so on, it's some, something incredible for me. So I try and save some connection with my life. Has war become the way of life now? Yeah. Does that define you? Yes, of course, 100%. Earth? Moving uh, not uh, <laughs> around the sun, but around the war. I mean, you've seen deaths and deaths very, very close up. I mean, what does it do? I mean, how does it change? Sorry, this is a stupid question. <laughs> uh, how does it change your sense of of death? I don't really believe that something is after this. I lost many friends. I saw what weapon can do with human body. Smallest part of human body what left from soldier in my experience it's uh, it was a part of face just left nothing more from from 90 kilogram soldier. But it's not about do you see every day. It's about how you explain to yourself what you see. How you thinking about everything was happening around and if you thinking every day that oh it's terrible it's disaster i will die i won't go home you will destroy your mind and someday you will have big problems with your mental health i won't say that i'm mentally uh, good <laughs> <laughs> and health, because some psychiatrists, after listening of this interview, say this man has much problem. But uh, 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 but I think that you must be little cold here. You must be little unemotional during this war for saving yourself. Many soldiers, even after one situation, they are losing their mind. And we also see that. Okay, I understand that maybe someday it would be my turn, and it's a, it's not a problem because it's historical time. I never when I was a schoolboy and read books about ancient world, about Rome, about Greece, about previous wars, Middle Ages, and so on. I never could imagine that I would be in such history. And as for me, it's it's a good history. I think Roman really hit on something there because this sense that people are playing a role in a pivotal moment in Ukraine's history and finding meaning in the awfulness of the war by playing that role is something that I think we heard again and again. And that sense of purpose being a powerful weapon against mental stress was something we actually heard amazingly from Olena Zelenska, the first lady of Ukraine. And just to give you a bit of background, one of the reasons we were in Ukraine at that time was to take part in a conference hosted by the first lady on mental health and resilience. And so we thought about that quite a lot. 
And I'm going to turn first to you, uh, Madame Zelenska, because you, along with your husband, a symbol of the resilience of this extraordinary country. And she's played, as everyone knows, a very prominent role in going frequently to the West, in being an absolute partner to her husband in making the case for Ukraine, but also in focusing on mental health. And so when we spoke to her, the first thing we asked her was how she kept going. I don't know exactly what is the English for adrenaline. 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 So the first days, first weeks, first month, it was adrenaline. Uh, we had had to run and run quickly, and it helped. And then we had to stop and remind ourselves and recall what we wanted and what we want to see in the future. So it is the more difficult task to how to keep ourselves and how to stand for a long time. I was wondering, as I came here, whether I would find a growing sense of anger. It's 18 months. Lives and lives and lives have been lost. Every family in Ukraine is affected. How would you describe people's emotions? Is there a sense of a destructive anger, or how do people feel? People know what they're fighting for, not against, for what they love, for children, for their family, for their home. And all of this is still under threat. Therefore, this anger does not subside. But our task now is to turn this anger into post-traumatic growth. Because these people who are now holding weapons in their hands will return home and they will have the same need for justice. They will not become kinder. They will not become softer. They will remain those strong men and women who held the sky on their shoulders. Society must prepare for it now because there will be outbreaks of aggression. I'm afraid that we will be destabilized emotionally, that we will lose the unity that we have now. Do you think that people realize it is going to be a long war? And will the society be able to sustain that long war? I think they realize. Mm, it is not pleasant and it's hard to realize. And um, everyone has to find the power inside to realize and to live their own lives. So, as you said, Zeni, I think that's absolutely right that people who cope probably best are those who found some purpose in this war. A lot of Ukrainians now define themselves through this war, through what they're doing. I think from the start, it's always been about agency. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm living my worst, but at the same time my best life ever. I feel like I was born for this moment. This is Svetlana Nahona. She is a 30-year-old financial auditor from Western Ukraine. She works by day for one of the big global auditing companies, but her life, as you'll hear, has profoundly changed since Russia's invasion. On February 24th, we had our online call with my team members just to exchange our thoughts and to answer the question, all right, the full-scale war is here, what should we do? First, we collected some private funds and bought some basic stuff like energy bars for soldiers or for civilians. So stuff that we were able to buy in supermarkets on February 25th. And then our movement started to evolve. And you set up a charity the the day of the evasion. Can you give me a, a brief sense of what that charity now does and what you've built up? First, we focused on bulletproof vest. Then it's vehicles, it's drones, civilian drones, thermal cameras. You said this has been the best of times and also the worst of times. Maybe let's start with why it's been the worst of times. Yes. I have a signal, you know, it's like messenger and I have only military community in signal. It's more than 200 or maybe even 250 chats. It's like a unique chats with the different soldiers. You chat with 250 yes, people. Yes, yes, wow. yes. And um, some of these chats in Signal will never respond. You understand why? I knew these people. I heard their voice. Sometimes they were sharing some of their dreams. I was asking them to share. And then this connection is lost forever. And this is the hardest thing. Do you recollect how you felt the first time you realized that someone was not responding? Mm. There were so many of such cases that I cannot recollect the first one. And how have you coped with that? The hardest is like the, the first cases. <laughs> and then you focus on those who are still alive. But then, <laughs> but then, <laughs> um, I've delivered a generator to, to one military unit. We had a contact person. His name is Maxim. And um, he just found us on social medias and uh, asked for, for a vehicle and for generator for his division. And we started communicating. And somehow, We managed to meet with him in Lviv after two months of just chatting on Facebook. And then I realized, we realized that I had some feelings to this person. And in three months since our offline meeting, we got married. You'd fallen in love and got married within three months. Yes, it was enough. You don't need more time. If that was not the time of full-scale war, I would think that I would think more on this decision. Maybe we will postpone to some better times, etc., etc. But you do not have time. And it was the best decision ever in my life. And where is Maxime now? On the front line. Can you plan for your life together? We do plan. 
because we are already pregnant. Congratulations! And this is the most amazing, I don't know, thing that has ever happened in my life. I wish I could describe the smile on your face. <laughs> it's wonderful. Wow. Um, it was. Do you think that you and Maxime, part of your love for each other is that you have a similar view of what this country is De fighting for? Definitely. To live and to fight is the same. We're about Ukraine and about love. And those things like go together. Maxim says that if you love something, someone, and you do not defend your love, don't tell me about your love. This looks like it is going to be a long war. How do you think you and Maxim and, and the country will be able to deal with that? Yesterday, Maxim was on a combat mission. He was very close to, to enemies. It was dangerous for him and um, the drone was like following him. And you know what happens when drone hit a human being. He just disappears. The body of Maxim could have disappeared yesterday. I will not leave this country and it's like not negotiable for, for myself, for Maxim as well. So once we decide that we will stay here, regardless of circumstances, we do not have other option other than fight for this. So listening to Svetlana is extraordinarily moving. She's had the best of times and the worst of times, as she told us. Her description of this being a time where she found love, but also a time where she found purpose, was actually mirrored, and I was struck by this, in the conversation that we had with Olena Zelenska, who not only said that Ukrainians had come together as a country to find their national identity, but she also said that they were motivated by universal human values, including their love for each other. In society, we need to nurture resilience and not forget our values. And that through aggression, through anger, we can lose what we want to gain. What are those values that people have to keep in mind that this is what we're fighting for? I think that we have now returned to our historical roots very powerfully. What was forgotten has now risen to the surface again. And our roots, our historical memory, gives us strength to hold on. We cannot betray our ancestors. We have already gone through so many experiences, crises and tragedies. And now we are just going through another one. Our value is the love and passion for our country and culture, because Ukraine is a democratic country and we value each person. That is why we so painfully accept every death note from the front, because every person is important to us. And it gives everything, it gives hope, it gives integrity. We have many dreams, we look at the future. And this is our main difference from our aggressor. They and all their propaganda are built on the past. They have inherited the memory of the Second World War. They decided this is their heritage. 
на цьому тільки. She is absolutely right. It is what differentiates Russia from Ukraine at the moment. Russia is completely focused on the past. And for Ukraine, the country as a whole has developed a sense of nationhood. And some, as we heard from Anna and Daniil, will feel disillusioned. But we have to inject this note of caution, if you like, because when we talk to Svetlana, the woman who's fallen in love and married a soldier, there was something that actually troubled me. I asked her about who her heroes were. And one of her heroes was a ultra-nationalist who was on the side of the Nazis. And this is one of the dangers, that this war will radicalize people. If you look back to the 20th century, we did not have the country, the state, the army, but still we had such a strong movement of Ukrainian nationalists. They are not Nazis, they are not fascists, as some from outside could call them. I feel that... I am a part of the same community fighting for my independence and I don't have other option now than to continue their path. To be a nationalist is just to love your country and to defend what belongs to you. The nationalists of the period that Svetlana talked about in the 1930s actually saw the Germans as liberators after what Stalin did to Ukraine. So this did put them on the side of the Nazis, some of them more than others, and they were complicit in the slaughter of Jews and Poles in World War II. Thinking back to that dark period of Ukrainian history, it's striking how close it is to go from a positive patriotism, if you will, to a dark nationalism, dangerous nationalism. And I think since February 24th, 2022, the sense that I have very powerfully is of the positive, patriotic kind of nationalism that has united Ukrainians. But if the war goes on for a long time, as I think you and I both came away from Kiev pretty clear that it would, there really isn't a guarantee that that sense of positive unity will remain. Nationalism could fuse with anger and a sense of betrayal, hatred towards Russians, disillusionment with the West, and something quite negative could come of it. It hasn't yet, and this is a young democracy, westward-looking, determined to at last fulfill a liberal sense of patriotic nationalism. But I think we would be naive if we ruled out the possibility that it could become something darker. The good news is that it's not the only version of reckoning with the country's history that's going in the country at the moment, that it's also aware of how much it needs to deal with the past to become that thriving European nation it wants to be. There was no city over there. And there was no road, of course. This was a deep ravine, very deep. So we're now on the edge of a highway, well within the city limits of Kiev, 
at Babinia Memorial to the Holocaust victims who were killed here by the Germans in World War II. So we heard from our guide, Ruslan Kavatsiuk. I used to be a deputy CEO in Babinyar Holocaust Memorial Center, and currently I am a director in Ukraine of war crimes investigation uh, in Yachat Inuni. In 1941 and 42, this was the place of the biggest uh, mass grave of the Second World War. In the first and biggest mass shooting, end of September 1941, almost 34,000 children, women, and elderly were killed here, mainly Jews, in uh, less than two days. Following the war and following the retreat of German troops, the Soviets actually suppressed the memory of Holocaust. Stalin didn't want to mourn the victims, particularly Jewish victims, at the time when he himself was borrowing from the Nazi rule book and instilling anti-Semitism as a state policy. And it's only recently that Babi Yar has become this all-encompassing memorial. It was only opened shortly before the war. They would bring people inside the ravine, make them lie down on the ground and later on on the top of other corpses and shoot them in the back of uh, their between neck and head. And you walk away from that ravine. You can see in front of you the TV tower that was hit by the Russians in February 2022. It's two bits of history that you can see and feel so incredibly close. The TV tower. Uh, and uh, the corrector of the fire was actually standing over here, correcting the fire. So, no. the, yeah. So our security actually tackled him, ran after him. He would try to throw out his uh, equipment. So they tackled him, gave him to authorities. So at that point, we're standing in front of this TV tower and there is a large stainless steel disc that covers the ground from which rise some dozen vertical columns, each shot through with bullets of the same caliber that were used by the Nazis in 1941. And if you stand there, you're immersed in the sounds that come from underneath, the sound of the names of people who've been killed here, bits of Jewish music, and it's a very powerful, all-immersive experience. Perceptions of this place has changed since February 22? I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. I think that we tried to always kind of speak that, you know, this cannot be happening again, never again, right? But then again, it happened. Many Ukrainians today, as a result of the war, are discovering not just their identity, but discovering their history. Is it a complete history that people are discovering? No, I think that... Uh, our history was bent and twisted by imperial history of Russian Federation and uh, of Russian Empire, <laughs> of Russian Empire. And um, I think that we still didn't uh, finalize it yet. And it's still being written right now. We may face difficult discussions as well. That's uh, okay, I think. Do you, do you think there is a danger that as war drags on and people, more people die and more people suffer? People get more radicalized, that they're, they're angry, they start reaching for other names and other parts of history. 
to be honest, I think that there is almost nothing in common between the real historic people who live in the 1940s and with the myth that is being used now trying to use that generation as the ones who fought for freedom of Ukraine against Russia. The myth itself, I think, is a healthy mechanism to cope with the challenge that we're facing, the existential challenge. I have to say, I think this is, this is the, the, certainly one of the most powerful places of memorial I've ever visited. But listening to you describe what you've done, and coming here at this point, it seems to me that this is you know, visible testimony of the creation of a new, inclusive, liberal, democratic Ukraine in progress. I think what Zeni just described is actually the core reason why Putin attacked this country. Yes, I think so. I agree with you that um, for them, if Ukraine as second largest and most powerful part of Soviet empire is um, successful in this democratic liberal transformation, then it means that Russia may also have a chance to look at the same path. And that's what Russian leadership doesn't want, right? They are really threatened by this kind of change because in that uh, kind of country, there is no place for them, right? Sometimes only being in a place really brings home the, the power of events. Not only have I visited this remarkable place, Babinyar, for the first time, but also a couple of days ago, we were in Bucha. Bucha is now imprinted, I think, on the 21st century as a place that we will always remember. And I think they just, they are so close. You are right. We are, we are in the midst of something that is a continuation of the 20th century and frankly, before then. Um, and the real question is, which side will be victorious? And what will be, will there be a possibility of finally completing your memorial here and finally completing that history, that inclusive history? Well, I do hope so. I do hope so. I um, believe that Russians um, simply cannot win because it would be a tragedy of the whole world. I don't think it's only the tragedy for Ukraine. But also, we've seen what they do to Ukrainians. I now work with uh, researchers uh, who collect uh, testimonies and um, facts of Russian war crimes in the East. I think we, when we liberate those territories, we will face something much more horrific than Bucha. Much more horrific. Володимир Кузьмич Юрченко, Арон Євсіович Ярошецький, Марка Воробля. This episode was reported by Zani Minton Beddoes and Arkady Ostrovsky. It was produced by Sarah Larniuk with additional production support from Marta Rodionova and Rita Burkowska. Our sound designer is Nicholas Rolfast. 
The executive producer of The Weekend Intelligence is Gemma Newby. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.